Shane by Jack Schaefer Chapter 14 Nothing could have kept me there in the house that night. My mind held nothing but the driving desire to follow Shane. I waited, hardly daring to breathe, while Mother watched him go. I waited until she turned to Father, bending over him, then I slipped around the doorpost out to the porch. I thought for a moment she had noticed me, but I could not be sure, and she did not call to me. I went softly down the steps and into the freedom of the night. Shane was nowhere in sight. I stayed in the darker shadows, looking about, and at last I saw him emerging once more from the barn. The moon was rising low over the mountains, a clean, bright crescent. Its light was enough for me to see him plainly in outline. He was carrying his saddle, and a sudden pain stabbed through me as I saw that with it was his saddle roll. He went toward the pasture gate, not slow, not fast, just firm and steady. There was a cat-like certainty in his every movement, a silent, inevitable deadliness. I heard him, there by the gate, give his low whistle, and the horse came out of the shadows at the far end of the pasture, its hooves making no noise in the deep grass, a dark and powerful shape etched in the moonlight, drifting across the field straight to the man. I knew what I would have to do. I crept along the corral fence, keeping tight to it, until I reached the road. As soon as I was around the corner of the corral, with it and the barn between me and the pasture, I started to run as rapidly as I could toward town, my feet plumping softly in the thick dust of the road. I walked this every school day, and it had never seemed long before. Now the distance stretched ahead, lengthening in my mind as if to mock me. I could not let him see me. I kept looking back over my shoulder as I ran. When I saw him swinging into the road, I was well past Johnson's, almost past Shipstead's, striking into the last open stretch to the edge of town. I scurried to the side of the road and behind a clump of bullberry bushes. Panting to get my breath, I crouched there and waited for him to pass. The hoofbeats swelled in my ears, mingled with the pounding beat of my own blood. In my imagination he was galloping furiously, and I was positive he was already rushing past me. But when I parted the bushes and pushed forward to peer out, he was moving at a moderate pace and was only almost abreast of me. He was tall and terrible there in the road, looming up gigantic in the mystic half-light. He was the man I saw that first day, a stranger, dark and forbidding, forging his lone way out of an unknown past in the utter loneliness of his own immovable and instinctive defiance. He was the symbol of all the dim, formless imaginings of danger and terror in the untested realm of human potentialities beyond my understanding. The impact of the menace that marked him was like a physical blow. I could not help it. I cried out and stumbled and fell. He was off his horse and over me before I could right myself, picking me up, his grasp strong and reassuring. I looked at him, tearful and afraid, and the fear faded from me. He was no stranger. That was some trick of the shadows. He was Shane. 
he was shaking me gently and smiling at me. "'Bobby boy, this is no time for you to be out. Skip along home and help your mother. I told you everything would be all right.' He let go of me and turned slowly, gazing out across the far sweep of the valley, silvered in the moon's glow. "'Look at it, Bob. Hold it in your mind like this. It's a lovely land, Bob.' A good place to be a boy and grow straight inside, as a man should. My gaze followed his, and I saw our valley as though for the first time, and the emotion in me was more than I could stand. I choked and reached out for him, and he was not there. He was rising into the saddle, and the two shapes, the man and the horse, became one, and moved down the road toward the yellow squares that were the patches of light from the windows of Grafton's building, a quarter of a mile away. I wavered a moment, but the call was too strong. I started after him, running frantically in the middle of the road. Whether he heard me or not, he kept right on. There were several men on the long porch of the building by the saloon doors. Red Marlin's hair made him easy to spot. They were scanning the road intently. As Shane hit the panel of light from the near big front window, the store window, they stiffened to attention. Red Marlin, a startled expression on his face, dived quickly through the doors. Shane stopped, not by the rail, but by the steps on the store side. When he dismounted, he did not slip the reins over the horse's head as the cowboys always did. He left them looped over the pommel of the saddle, and the horse seemed to know what this meant. It stood motionless, close by the steps, head up, waiting, ready for whatever swift need. Shane went along the porch and halted briefly, fronting the two men still there. Where's Fletcher? They looked at each other and at Shane. One of them started to speak. He doesn't want— Shane's voice stopped him. It slapped at them, low and with an edge that cut right into your mind. Where's Fletcher? One of them jerked a hand toward the doors, and then, as they moved to shift out of his way, his voice caught them. Get inside. Go clear to the bar before you turn. They stared at him, and stirred uneasily, and swung together to push through the doors. As the doors came back, Shane grabbed them, one with each hand, and pulled them out and wide open, and he disappeared between them. Clumsy and tripping in my haste, I scrambled up the steps and into the store. Sam Grafton and Mr. Weir were the only persons there, and they were both hurrying to the entrance of the saloon, so intent that they failed to notice me. They stopped in the opening. I crept behind them to my familiar perch on my box where I could see past them. The big room was crowded. Almost everyone who could be seen regularly around town was there, everyone but our homestead neighbors. There were many others who were new to me. They were lined up elbow to elbow nearly the entire length of the bar. The tables were full, and more men were lounging along the far wall. The big round poker table at the back, between the stairway to the little balcony and the door to Grafton's office, was littered with glasses and chips. It seemed strange, for all the men standing, that there should be an empty chair at the far curve of the table. Someone must have been in that chair, 
because chips were at the place, and a half-smoked cigar, a wisp of smoke curling up from it, was by them on the table. Red Marlin was leaning against the back wall, behind the chair. As I looked, he saw the smoke and appeared to start a little. With a careful show of casualness, he slid into the chair and picked up the cigar. A haze of thinning smoke was by the ceiling over them all, floating in involved streamers around the hanging lamps. This was Grafton Saloon in the flush of a banner evening's business. But something was wrong, was missing. The hum of activity, the whir of voices that should have risen from the scene, been part of it, was stilled in a hush more impressive than any noise could be. The attention of everyone in the room, like a single sense, was centered on that dark figure just inside the swinging doors, back to them and touching them. This was the shame of the adventures I had dreamed for him, cool and competent, facing that room full of men in the simple solitude of his own invincible completeness. His eyes searched the room. They halted on a man sitting at a small table in the front corner, with his hat on low over his forehead. With a thump of surprise, I recognized it was Stark Wilson, and he was studying Shane with a puzzled look on his face. Shane's eyes swept on, checking off each person. They stopped again on a figure over by the wall, and the beginnings of a smile showed in them, and he nodded almost imperceptibly. It was Chris, tall and lanky, his arm in a sling, and as he caught the nod he flushed a little and shifted his weight from one foot to the other. Then he straightened his shoulders, and over his face came a slow smile, warm and friendly the smile of a man who knows his own mind at last. But Shane's eyes were already moving on. They narrowed as they rested on Red Marlin. Then they jumped to Will Atke, trying to make himself small behind the bar. Where's Fletcher? Will fumbled with the cloth in his hands. I, I don't know. He was here a while ago. Frightened at the sound of his own voice in the stillness, Will dropped the cloth, started to stoop for it, and checked himself, putting his hands to the inside rim of the bar to hold himself steady. Shane tilted his head slightly so his eyes could clear his hat brim. He was scanning the balcony across the rear of the room. It was empty, and the doors there were closed. He stepped forward, disregarding the men by the bar, and walked quietly past them the long length of the room. He went through the doorway to Grafton's office and into the semi-darkness beyond. And still the hush held. Then he was in the office doorway again, and his eyes bored toward Red Marlin. Where's Fletcher? The silence was taut and unendurable. It had to break. The sound was that of Stark Wilson coming to his feet in the far front corner. His voice, lazy and insolent, floated down the room. "'Where's Starrett?' While the words yet seemed to hang in the air, Shane was moving toward the front of the room. But Wilson was moving, too. He was crossing toward the swinging doors, and he took his stand just to the left of them, a few feet out from the wall. 
The position gave him command of the wide aisle running back between the bar and the tables, and Shane coming forward in it. Shane stopped about three-quarters of the way forward, about five yards from Wilson. He cocked his head for one quick sidewise glance again at the balcony, and then he was looking only at Wilson. He did not like the setup. Wilson had the front wall, and he was left in the open of the room. He understood the fact, assessed it, accepted it. They faced each other in the aisle, and the men along the bar jostled one another in their hurry to get to the opposite side of the room. A reckless arrogance was on Wilson, certain of himself and his control of the situation. He was not one to miss the significance of the slim deadliness that was Shane. But even now, I think, he did not believe that anyone in our valley would deliberately stand up to him. "'Where's Starrett?' he said once more, still mocking Shane, but making it this time a real question. The words went past Shane as if they had not been spoken. "'I had a few things to say to Fletcher,' he said gently. "'That can wait. You're a pushing man, Wilson.' so I reckon I'd better accommodate you. Wilson's face sobered, and his eyes glinted coldly. I've no quarrel with you, he said flatly, even if you are Starrett's man. Walk out of here without any fuss, and I'll let you go. It's Starrett I want. What you want, Wilson, and what you'll get, are two different things. Your killing days are done." Wilson had it now. You could see him grasp the meaning. This quiet man was pushing him just as he had pushed Ernie Wright. As he measured Shane, it was not to his liking. Something that was not fear, but a kind of wondering and baffled reluctance showed in his face. And then there was no escape, for that gentle voice was pegging him to the immediate and implacable moment. "'I'm waiting, Wilson.' Do I have to crowd you into slapping leather? Time stopped, and there was nothing in all the world but two men looking into eternity in each other's eyes. And the room rocked in the sudden blur of action indistinct in its incredible swiftness, and the roar of their guns was a single sustained blast. And Shane stood, solid on his feet as a rooted oak, and Wilson swayed, his right arm hanging useless blood beginning to show in a small stream from under the sleeve over the hand, the gun slipping from the numbing fingers. He backed against the wall, a bitter disbelief twisting his features. His left arm hooked, and the second gun was showing, and Shane's bullet smashed into his chest, and his knees buckled, sliding him slowly down the wall till the lifeless weight of the body toppled it sideways to the floor." Shane gazed across the space between, and he seemed to have forgotten all else as he let his gun ease into the holster. "'I gave him his chance,' he murmured out of the depths of a great sadness. But the words had no meaning for me, because I noticed on the dark brown of his shirt, low and just above the belt to one side of the buckle, the darker spot gradually widening. Then others noticed, too, and there was a stir in the air, and the room was coming to life. Voices were starting, but no one focused on them. They were snapped short by the roar of a shot from the rear of the room. A wind seemed to whip Shane's shirt at the shoulder, 
and the glass of the front window beyond shattered near the bottom. Then I saw it. It was mine alone. The others were turning to stare at the back of the room. My eyes were fixed on Shane, and I saw it. I saw the whole man move, all of him, in the single flashing instant. I saw the head lead and the body swing and the driving power of the legs beneath. I saw the arm leap and the hand take the gun in the lightning sweep. I saw the barrel line up like, like a finger pointing, and the flames spurt even as the man himself was still in motion. And there on the balcony, Fletcher, impaled in the act of aiming for a second shot, rocked on his heels and fell back into the open doorway behind him. He clawed at the jams and pulled himself forward. He staggered to the rail and tried to raise the gun, but the strength was draining out of him, and he collapsed over the rail, jarring it loose and falling with it. Across the stunned and barren silence of the room, Shane's voice seemed to come from a great distance. "'I expect that finishes it,' he said. Unconsciously, without looking down, he broke out the cylinder of his gun and reloaded it. The stain on his shirt was bigger now, spreading fan-like above the belt, but he did not appear to know or care. Only his movements were slow, retarded by an unutterable weariness. The hands were sure and steady, but they moved slowly, and the gun dropped into the holster of its own weight. He backed with dragging steps toward the swinging doors until his shoulders touched them. The light in his eyes was unsteady like the flickering of a candle guttering toward darkness. And then, as he stood there, a strange thing happened. How could one describe it, the change that came over him? Out of the mysterious resources of his will, the vitality came. It came creeping, a tide of strength that crept through him and fought and shook off the weakness. It shone in his eyes, and they were alive again and alert. It welled up in him, sending that familiar power surging through him again until it was singing again in the every vibrant line of him. He faced that room full of men and read them all with the one sweeping glance and spoke to them in that gentle voice with that quiet, inflexible quality. I'll be riding on now, and there's not a one of you that will follow. He turned his back on them in the indifference of absolute knowledge that they would do as he said. Straight and superb, he was silhouetted against the doors and the patch of night above them. The next moment they were closing with a soft swish of sound. The room was crowded with action now. Men were clustering around the bodies of Wilson and Fletcher, pressing to the bar, talking excitedly. Not a one of them, though, approached too close to the doors. There was a cleared space by the doorway, as if someone had drawn a line marking it off. I did not care what they were doing or what they were saying. I had to get to Shane. I had to get to him in time. I had to know and he was the only one who could ever tell me. I dashed out the store door, and I was in time. He was on his horse, already starting away from the steps. Shane, I whispered desperately, loud as I dared without the men inside hearing me. Oh, Shane. 
He heard me and reined around, and I hurried to him, standing by a stirrup and looking up. "'Bobby, Bobby boy, what are you doing here?' "'I've been here all along,' I blurted out. "'You've got to tell me. Was that Wilson?' He knew what was troubling me. He always knew. "'Wilson,' he said, "'was mighty fast, as fast as I've ever seen.' "'I don't care,' I said, the tears starting. "'I don't care if he was the fastest that ever was. "'He'd never have been able to shoot you, would he? "'You'd have got him straight, wouldn't you, if you'd been in practice?' "'He hesitated a moment. "'He gazed down at me and into me, and he knew. "'He knew what goes on in a boy's mind "'and what can help him stay clean inside.' through the muddled, dirtied years of growing up. Sure, sure, Bob. He'd never even have cleared the holster. He started to bend down toward me, his hand reaching for my head. But the pain struck him like a whiplash, and the hand jumped to his shirt front by the belt, pressing hard, and he reeled a little in the saddle. The ache in me was more than I could bear. I stared dumbly at him, and because I was just a boy and helpless, I turned away and hid my face against the firm, warm flank of the horse. Bob. Yes, Shane. A man is what he is, Bob, and there's no breaking the mold. I tried that, and I've lost. But I reckon it was in the cards from the moment I saw a freckled kid on a rail up the road there, and a real man behind him the kind that could back him for the chance another kid never had. But, but Shane, you... There's no going back from a killing, Bob. Right or wrong, the brand sticks, and there's no going back. It's up to you now. Go home to your mother and father. Grow strong and straight, and take care of them. Both of them. Yes, Shane... There's only one thing more I can do for them now. I felt the horse move away from me. Shane was looking down the road and onto the open plain, and the horse was obeying the silent command of the reins. He was riding away, and I knew that no word or thought could hold him. The big horse, patient and powerful, was already settling into the steady pace that had brought him into our valley and the two, the man and the horse, were a single dark shape in the road as they passed beyond the reach of the light from the windows. I strained my eyes after him, and then, in the moonlight, I could make out the inalienable outline of his figure receding into the distance. Lost in my loneliness, I watched him go, out of town, far down the road where it curved out to the level country beyond the valley. There were men on the porch behind me, but I was aware only of that dark shape growing small and indistinct along the far reach of the road. A cloud passed over the moon, and he merged into the general shadow, and I could not see him. And the cloud passed on, and the road was a plain thin ribbon to the horizon, and he was gone. I stumbled back to fall on the steps, my head in my arms to hide the tears. 
the voices of the men around me were meaningless noises in a bleak and empty world. It was Mr. Weir who took me home.